Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And before we get started, we need to do a little shout out to our new Patreons, who are Kara DiDamozio and Karen Pardon. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon, and we will get your cards out in the mail to you this week. And Haley, I did this story for you. What, what are your favorite stories that we do? Disappearances. Like missing probably. persons? Yeah. Are you okay with doing one that's over 100 years old? I like them when they're more recent, but yeah. This one's interesting. It it has all of the things that I look for in a story and extra. It has DNA, genealogy, and mystery, and true crime. It has everything about it. And got the history part. I mean, it is over 100 years old. Have you heard of Bobby Dunbar before? No. The disappearance of Bobby Dunbar in 1912 made headlines across the world. Almost 100 years later, the truth and DNA would tear one family apart, restore the faith in one, and vindicate another. On August 23, 1912, the Dunbar family left their home in Louisiana for a fishing trip to Swazi. Swazi, if you're from Louisiana, you could probably fix my pronunciation, but Swazi Lake in, in a nearby parish. The family consisted of Father Percy, Mother Lessie, sons Bobby and Alonzo. The next day, Bobby disappeared without a trace. The four-year-old, whose nickname was Heavy, was playing by the swampy lake. By the time lunch was ready, he and his cousins needed to head back to the campsite. Bobby was nowhere to be found. The only evidence was a short trail of baby footprints that ended abruptly in the mud near the lake. In what turned out to be an eighth-month quest to find Bobby, searchers dragged and even dynamited the lake, but found no trace of a body. A serious consideration was that he had been eaten by an alligator. Hunters took it upon themselves to kill the largest of the alligators in the area and slice open their bellies, but they found nothing. Would they even find anything anyway? Well, if an alligator, I don't think he, like, chews up like an alligator goes chomp 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 and then like swallows right right but then doesn't your stomach digest all of that well no they would have found in the stomach they would have found his clothes his socks his shoes i don't know something right his bones they would have found something to indicate that an alligator ate him i don't know for some reason i think that your stomach digests all of it so it can come out well they were searching for him the same day oh it was all on the same day it was all like within days of each other it wasn't like months the parents stayed in the area searching through the end of august they believed beyond a doubt that their son was alive and had been kidnapped a stranger had been seen hanging around where the child had been playing once bobby went missing the adult man wasn't around anymore now here's the complicated part like this is where there's a bunch of people. It was a camping site. It was where everybody went to camp. And that's when the story started building up. Like, well, there's this man here. And now he's not here anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So then that started the whole idea. And to be honest, as parents, wouldn't you grasp onto any Lead. thread, any mm-hmm. thread that your child didn't just drown yeah. and was at the bottom of the lake? Yeah. That you would hope, you would almost hope that someone would kidnap him as opposed to being eaten by an alligator, right? Because there's a chance that you get him back. Right. The state police began a statewide manhunt. The family hired a detective agency, and with the help and donations from townspeople, family, and friends, they put up a $6,000 reward, which is just a huge amount of money nowadays. Do you know what I mean? Like the The conversion or whatever. Right. Percy Dunbar, a well-respected real estate and insurance man, well, he was well-respected during this time. It changes a little bit later. 
but he was a well-respected real estate and insurance man, had a detective agency print a postcards with a picture and description of Bobby and mail them to every town and county official from East Texas to Florida. And this is what the postcard read. Large, round blue eyes, light hair, but turning dark, complexion very fair with rosy cheeks, well-developed, stout, but not very fat. It read, big toe on left foot, badly scarred from a burn when he was a baby. Eight months after his disappearance, the Denmark bars received a wire from Mississippi, a drifter or a man that they called originally a drifter and the papers called him this. William Cantwell Walters was arrested. Traveling with the man in a tent wagon was a boy who matched Bobby Dunbar's description. Description. I Sorry. <laughs> description. The Dunbars dropped everything and went to Mississippi. Now, the story goes is that the dad got there first and then the mom came like to not break her heart. Do you know what I mean? Like he would go and see if it was his son. He insisted it was his son. And this is the thing that comes up later. Every newspaper across the nation was covering the story. The thought that a little boy disappeared in a swamp and could have been kidnapped was huge news. So understanding that Percy Dunbar was a real estate man, no bad publicity is, you know, like the whole, what's the saying? No publicity is bad publicity. Right. So basically he was getting a a shit ton of attention for his son going missing. The thing is, is depending on which newspaper article you read or you believe, The reunion didn't go well, or the reunion was everything everybody had hoped for. It depends on what version you read. One paper reported that the boy was sleeping and woke crying because he was surrounded by strangers, which was Lessie and Percy. Some quote Lessie Dunbar as saying, while staring at the sleeping child, I don't know if it's him. She asked to see the boy again the next day and asked for permission to give him a bath, after which she declared that that it was her son and that the scar from the burn on his foot had shrunk so much that that's like she blamed that's why that he had grown so much in eight months that the scar had shrunk. And that's why she didn't know if it was him at first because she was looking for the scar. Mm-hmm. So essentially he didn't have the scar. Right. He also didn't have the same hair color. But she, after giving him a bath, claimed that it was her son. And Percy Dunbar stood behind her saying that they believed that that was their son and that William Walters, the, gun, the man that was arrested, had lightened his hair to disguise him. Some sources say that Percy Dunbar, who arrived in Mississippi ahead of his wife, claimed immediately that the boy was his son. And some papers went so far as to call Percy a publicity hound, like he was trying to get attention from it. After eight months, the story of the missing Bobby Dunbar had faded unless people were talking about it, and that didn't help his business at all. The arrest of Walters and the claim that the boy was the missing child, brought the news back into the spotlight, which didn't hurt Percy's real estate business at all. So at this point, this boy is with this family because they think it's Bobby Dunbar. They're saying it's their son. Okay. Some people say that Percy had to convince his wife to say it was her, not convince her to say it was her son, convince her that it was their son. And she started to believe that it was her son. Mm -hmm. Some people say that he, there was no heartwarming reunion that, like, the wouldn't little boy the kid didn't, be happy to see his parents? They're saying that he was just too young, that he forgot who they were in eight months. How old was he? Four. Mm, I don't know. That seems hard to believe. Yeah. And so the ultimately, the boy started calling both of them Ma and Pa, 
And, um, but reporters, some reporters who were really intent on finding the truth and dragging the story out, basically, said that he did so tentatively. But they took Bobby home. The police said, okay, it's your son. You can take him home. When they arrived back in Opelousa, Louisiana, the town threw this giant party. They had a parade and they had him riding on a fire truck. The town rejoiced that poor Bobby Dunbar had been found, but had he? In the meantime, William Walters was being held in a Mississippi jail on kidnapping charges, which back then was considered a felony with a death penalty. I mean, there was no ands, if, or buts. He was mm-hmm. going to be hung yeah. if he was found guilty. He maintained since his arrest and consequently through his trial and his imprisonment that the boy was not Bobby Dunbar at all. It was a child named Charles Bruce Anderson, who was his brother's son. His brother's name was Bunt or D.B. Walters, who had left town the minute that he found out that this woman was pregnant. The woman, the mother of this Charles Bruce Anderson, was a woman named Julia Anderson. She met William Walters and Bunt Walters because she was hired to take care of their aging parents. Walters got so desperate that he wrote a letter directly to the Dunbars, asking them to bring Julia to Mississippi, and in it he promised that she would be able to identify the child as her own. He wrote, I know by now you have decided. You are wrong. It is very likely I will lose my life on account of that, and if I do, the great God will hold you accountable. He wanted Julia Anderson to come claim her child, yeah. and he was convinced that his the child would recognize Julia also. Mm-hmm. The Dunbars declined to bring Julia to Mississippi. They didn't want to know the truth anymore. As far as they were concerned, that little boy was their son. Yeah. The Dunbars declined, but a newspaper in New Orleans took him up on it. They paid for Julia to go to Appaloosa where the Dunbars had already taken Bobby. The newspapers from all over covered Julia's arrival, including that New Orleans paper. The papers say when she arrived, she was exhausted from her trip and was taken in at one of the homes in town. Five boys all around Bobby's age and size and build were brought in at different times along with Bobby slash Bruce. Mm -hmm. Some reports say that Percy Dunbar orchestrated the meeting with the boys and that he kept the room very dark and that he refused for the child in question to even be one of the boys that she got to meet and speak to. So we still to this day don't know if Bobby slash Bruce was one of the boys brought into the room. Eventually, the next day, she kept asking again, I want those boys were not my son. Please let me see my son. They finally brought Bobby Bruce into the room and papers say that when he was brought in, he was in tears and so was Julia. He showed no sign of recognition. Even when Julia went to spoke directly to him, but Julia asked the group of men that were in the room, if that was the boy that had been found, they refused to answer her. So they basically orchestrated it so that, she or the child would not be able to know. And here's the other thing too. When they brought Bobby back into town, his parents showered him with gifts. Remember he's four years old. They bought him a freaking pony. Yeah. Like he, as far as like at four years old, he can't, he hadn't seen his mom in at least eight months. And from what you kind of understand about her, she was, she'd gotten pregnant out of wedlock. She was working, taking care of these ill, these older aging parents and she let the uncle take him. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did she really even have a bond with her child to begin with? Yeah. So it's not that weird that he wouldn't have recognized her. And he was being showered with gifts. Like, would you want to be taken away from that? 
Probably not. At four. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like someone offers you candy, you're going to go with that. You're going to walk away from your mom mm-hmm. to get a piece of candy. Yeah. She felt certain that the one boy that had been brought in was her son, but by then her failure to recognize him immediately made national headlines. One headline by Jerome Beatty, the title was, Julia Has Forgotten. Her long journey had been in vain. She had not seen her son since February of 1912, and she had forgotten him. Animals don't forget, but this big, coarse country woman, several times a mother, she forgot. She cared little for her young children, who were only regrettable accidents in her life. She hopes her son isn't dead, just as she hopes that the cotton crop will be good this year. Of true love, this mother has none. That sucks. That someone wrote that about her? Right. Yeah. Like, the papers had done their homework. They knew that Julia had not only let her four-year-old son Bruce leave home to travel with his uncle, she also had lost one child to SIDS, which clearly wasn't her fault, but she had also given up a daughter for adoption. She was labeled a woman with loose morals and an unfit mother by the newspapers. Julia had no lawyer and no money and very few allies, obviously, in Appaloosa. So she left town and began the long trip back to North Carolina, childless. I had read somewhere that they had taken her in in Mississippi, and she ended up living her life out there. From that point on, the boy became Bobby Dunbar. The thing is, is the Dunbars were were a wealthy family. Julia was the opposite. She was a single mother who obviously was not looked at very highly, being that she claims she let William Walters, who was considered a drifter, or some people called him a tinkerer, take her son for weeks and months at a time. Although she claims that she only gave permission for him to take him two days, it was Walters who had took it upon himself to keep the boy longer. That's where it's kind of confusing. Like She's not denying that she let Walters take her son, but she is denying that she let him take him for eight months. Why would he want to take a small boy, four years old, with him? I guess originally he had taken him because she basically needed help. And so he wasn't going far, so he had originally taken him with him. But he started noticing that when he offered, he um, tuned pianos and things like that. And when he would come up to a house and offer to tune their piano for a set amount or sleep for the night, the people of the house were much kinder to him because he had a baby with him. Got it. So it was sort of a sympathy thing for him. He got Mm -hmm. more food. He was offered um, more comfortable. Instead of, yeah, you can spend the night in our barn, they would let him come sleep in the house because of the baby. Yeah. So he sort of used the baby as a sympathy thing. Um, But it doesn't mean he was a bad guy. I mean, he was kind of helping someone out and it was helping him too. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the newspaper articles all conflicted with each other. Some say the boy failed to recognize either mother. He had been gone many months, but you would think he would have recognized Julia if she were his mom. I mean, you would think, right? I mean, we've talked. It I just don't seems know. weird. I f- it feel, seems weird for, to think that even a four-year-old, that's young, but still, to would not recognize, recognize his mom. Recognize even mom. after eight months. Mm-hmm. And it says that um, some articles say pub, like crazy headlines that he ran to Leslie Dunbar in tears. Others say it was the opposite, but the Dunbars, being wealthy, showered the boy with new gifts. Like I said, they bought him a pony. And I don't know, you would think at four years old, he might have just been content to stay with the Dunbars no matter what. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably lived in a beautiful house. He had been living in a wagon on the road. Do you know, like, I don't know. I just don't know if, if kids can, in their brains, say, well, this is better than where I was kind of thing. 
The bottom line is that he clearly did not have a strong connection to Julia either way. Right? He didn't have a strong connection to either mother. Yeah, and it could have been if he was with that guy going house to house and stuff, it could have just been like, okay, well, this is the house I'm at for now and not have really thought about it. You like know what I mean? Like, who's mommy? That was yeah. his, yeah. It says a child went on to live his life as a Dunbar. He moved to Texas ultimately and was an electrical supply salesman according to his death certificate, which I, again, of course, found on Ancestry.com. He married, had four children of his own, naming one after himself, Robert Bobby Dunbar Jr., and one son after his brother and father, John Percy Dunbar. Um, his brother, his brother's name was um, Alonzo, but his name, his actual name was John Alonzo Dunbar, and so he named one of his children John. He sadly died of a heart attack at the age of fifty-eight in March of nineteen sixty-six, believing that he was a Dunbar. Correct? Yeah. Sadly, Leslie Dunbar outlived both her sons. Alonzo died in nineteen fifty-nine. All these things I found on Ancestry, by the way. She also suffered very publicly at the hands of her husband. After this was all over, Percy ended up cheating on her very publicly. He ended up spending time in jail, and they divorced in 1927 after a cheating scandal. So Leslie got her son back, but ended up outliving both her sons and losing and her husband. Her husband. Yeah. We'll be right back with the trial of William Walters after a message from our sponsors. Also, be sure to stay tuned at the end of today's episode. We have some promos to play for some really great podcasts that I know you're all going to love. So make sure you stay tuned to listen to those at the end of today's episode. The trial of William Walters began almost immediately once the Dunbars claimed that the child was theirs, and newspapers from all over covered the trial. Despite witnesses coming forward and stating they had met and seen Walters with the child far before Bobby Dunbar's disappearance, and evidence presented by his attorneys, public support worked against him still. The Dunbars had invested considerable time and resources into the case and hired private detectives to discredit Walters in any alibi that he came up with. They kept up public relations and even put Bobby on display as a poor victim of a kidnapping, like his father did, took him on public appearances, where they would stand him up in a theater and be meet the boy, the kidnapped boy, Bobby Dun Bobby Dunbar. Like how awful for that child! Like people would pay fifty cents to see Bobby Dunbar. Yeah, that's awful. He's four years old. And also, why would the parents want to like relive that every time they did that too? Because he made money and it gave him publicity. Yeah. Turned awful. out to be a horrible man, really. After two weeks of testimony, the case went to the jury, and on April 28, 1914, William Cantwell Walters was found guilty of kidnapping. Although he was not sentenced to death, as many, including myself, thought he would have been because that was the punishment for kidnapping, he was sentenced to life in prison. He even, this is so sad, got beaten up his first night in prison because that's how, I mean... We know how it is now. They talk about prisoners who go to jail who hurt kids. Mm -hmm. Somehow, some way, other prisoners get to them. Yeah. Well, apparently it was even like that in 1914. The problem was is that nobody knows if William Walters was really guilty or not. He ended up serving only two years. His attorney appealed his conviction, and because of the cost of the first trial, the court declined to try him and instead released him. Weird turn of events, right? Yeah. Is it because they weren't certain that he really kidnapped anybody? Probably. Until the end of his life, he and his family maintained his innocence in the case. His life following prison was a difficult one. 
upon his release, he was taken by stretcher to the hospital. He ultimately returned to Mississippi, but the stigma of being a kidnapper followed him the rest of his life. He finally joined a touring company, telling his side of the story, but once interest in him in the case dwindled, he became a drifter. Apparently, no one in his family knows exactly what happened to him or where and when he even passed away or is buried. I tried to find him on Ancestry, but it's really hard to find him. There are trees, there are trees claiming their ancestor was that William Walters, but ugh, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like someone has an actual picture saying it's William Walters and that he was involved in the Bobby Dunbar kidnapping case. Mm-hmm. But the guy, the the photograph from, well, it's actually before 1912, but um, looks very regal. And I don't think some guy that went house to house, county to county, fixing pianos would look regal in a photograph. Do you know what I'm saying? There aren't. I don't think it's the right person. There aren't pictures from like newspapers or anything of actually him that you could compare? That I couldn't find. There were, they would have been drawings back then. Well, no, 1912, they would have been photographs. I couldn't find any, but the thing is, I think people are claiming that their Walter, William Walters was that. that, William Walters. Yeah, and I don't think it was. I guess the mystery of what finally happened to Walters, other than his life was completely changed by the accusation and, and conviction. His family says that he was a nice guy who just went around and tinkered. And after that, he was judged as a kidnapper. Yeah. Julia Anderson remained in Mississippi, like I said, married James Oliver Rawls in 1914. And I found him, her Oliver ancestry, which was really interesting. She would go on to have another seven children. Jesus. Who say she never gave up hope of being reunited with her son. She died at the age of 57 and is buried in Forks Creek Cemetery in Poplarville, Mississippi. But here's the thing. Story doesn't end there. In 1999, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, the granddaughter of the Bobby Dunbar and daughter of Bobby Dunbar Jr., was given her grandmother's scrapbook. This is Leslie's scrapbook. In it was 400 articles about the missing child and the subsequent recovery of him and the arrest of William Walters. Although she had heard the story of her grandfather's kidnapping her entire life, she found a completely different side in the scrapbook. For the first time in her life, she questioned the tale as she'd always heard it. To sort out what had really happened almost 90 years ago, this back then it was 90 years, she went on a quest to find the truth. The first person in her family to ever question what actually happened. Everybody just assumed he was Bobby Dunbar and he had been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. She spent time in libraries and the Library of Congress, poring over court records. She also found a listing of Julie Anderson on a genealogical site, which I'm bummed it doesn't say which one in which it said Julia had a son from her first marriage named Bruce, who was kidnapped from North Carolina when he was six years old and taken to Louisiana. She had tried to get him back, but the people that kidnapped him won him in court and changed his name to Bobby Dunbar. That's how she found out someone else had claimed her father to be her, her grandfather to be their son. Right. In 2000, Margaret did what nobody else in her family, to her knowledge, had ever done before. She went to meet and visit with the descendants of Julia Anderson. Her two living children, Hollis Rawls, Julia's living children, Hollis Rawls and Jewel Tarver, and Jewel's Jewel's daughter, Linda. So she became friends with Linda, who was Julia Anderson's granddaughter. Which would have been Bruce's sister, stepsister. What? What? I'm confused. I can never follow these. Margaret is Bobby Dunbar's granddaughter. Linda is Julia's granddaughter. Okay. Bruce would have been her grandfather. Got it. Right. Do you know, get it? Sure. But 
Bobby was Margaret's grandfather. So basically it's two granddaughters, one of Bruce and one of Bobby are working together now. Linda, the granddaughter of Julie Anderson, grew up hearing a completely different story than Margaret had heard. They knew the story as their kin being kidnapped and renamed Bobby Dunbar. So two families, one family saying, our grandfather got kidnapped, right? But we got him back and but we got him, Bobby Dunbar. Right. right. The other family is saying, our grandfather got kidnapped and taken by this family in Louisiana. Okay. Sad, right? Yeah. So now there's three families involved. There's the family of Bruce. There's poor William Walters and his family. Well, it was the same family, but do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then there's the family of Margaret's. Right. Hollis and Jewel, Julia's youngest children, had learned a completely different story than the newspapers of the time had printed. They told Margaret how their grandmother loved to read, that she wasn't some coarse country woman, that she loved to read, and she was completely different than the illiterate woman painted in the papers. She was a Christian who loved her children and grandchildren dearly. And Julia didn't just go to church. They say she founded the church. She was a nurse and a midwife for the entire community. During the Depression, she sewed all her children's clothing out of fertilizer bags, and they were always well-fed. There was only one thing missing, her son Bruce. She talked about Bruce, but she called him Bobby. She knew that was her son. She was always looking for him. The siblings told stories of in the 1940s when they believed that Bobby Dunbar actually visited them. So this is the first time Margaret is hearing that her grandfather even questioned whether he was a Dunbar. He went to visit Julia Anderson's kids in the 1940s. Why? Because he suspected that he wasn't a Dunbar. Hmm. He started to, he had believed this story that he was kidnapped. He was made to be put on a pedestal and say that he was a kidnapping victim at four years old Mm -hmm. through the age of five or six. He himself questioned whether that was really his family. He read all the papers. He knew that there was William Walters. He knew that there was Julia Anderson. He had memories of having to meet this woman. Yeah. And he started questioning it. He actually showed up at both of their jobs, the children's jobs, to see if they were his brother and sister, to see if there was a likeness. He says, Margaret took this as a sign that Bobby himself questioned whether or not he was a Dunbar. This compounded with the news stories made Margaret want a definitive answer. Was the man she knew as her grandfather a Dunbar or an Anderson? Despite objections from other reluctant family members, Robert Dunbar Jr., the son of Bobby and Margaret's father, agreed to provide a DNA sample for testing. He is quoted as saying, Daddy did not have the science of DNA to confirm the decision of the court in his youth. I feel it is my responsibility to achieve that before I go. So her dad agreed to have a DNA test. The easiest way to compare the DNA would be the two different lines of the Dunbars. Someone from Bobby's line, meaning his son, Margaret's father, and Alonzo. Alonzo had already passed away also. So they used his son. So they took Margaret's father's, who was Bobby Dunbar's son, and Alonzo's son and compared their DNA. Okay. Bob and Margaret spoke with Alonzo's son. He's the one who agreed to do the test. Guess what happened? What? They did not match. The boy who grew up as Bobby Dunbar was not genetically related to Alonzo Dunbar. Vindicated, the Anderson family warmly welcomed Bobby Dunbar Jr. into their family. But the revelation came as such a shock to Bobby Dunbar's relatives who expressed anger and outrage at Margaret and Robert. For even doing the DNA. Right. Margaret Dunbar Cutright said that her intent was to prove 
that we were Dunbar's. The results didn't turn out that way. I have had to do some readjustment to my thinking. Her father said that he would do it again. Bob's siblings had no idea that he'd taken the test. And when the news decided to cover the story, Bob Jr. had to tell him and it didn't go well. They were stunned and mad, both at Robert slash Bob and Margaret, who they blamed for orchestrating the whole thing and making national news. Margaret's younger brother explained what it was like to be in a quote to a radio show on a story that I found, and I'll put the link on our website. You know she was really going up against an entire family, including myself. In fact, I'm not sure if any family member that was for it, except for her and possibly my dad, who did the DNA test. In retrospect, you know she was doing what she felt was right, but I felt like she was alienating everybody else in doing so. The other thing about all of that is some of us in the family, and probably even me at one time, probably felt that she was being a bit selfish. Why do this? Why do you need to do this? Nobody in the family wants to know. The story ran in 2004, and the family still hasn't forgiven Margaret. Wow. They said that she was disrespecting their heritage and destroying family relationships. They told her that they were Dunbars, and that's all they wanted to be. Okay. So I have very strong feelings about this, and I I really, really want to hear from other people. The descendants of who they thought was Bobby Dunbar are pissed that Margaret even did the DNA test with her dad and Alonzo's son. So they're just angry. They said they're Dunbars and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Like, I'm flabbergasted by that. Yeah. It was a hundred effing years ago. Yeah. You're not a Dunbar. Hey, news flash, not a Dunbar. Like, right. you're not. You're not. You can say you are. You can say the color green is color green as much as you want. But if it's purple, it's freaking purple. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you are not a Dunbar. And I'm sorry if that upsets you. But DNA doesn't lie. Like, I don't. I, don't, I cannot for. I, I really want to hear from people who have a different viewpoint. But they basically said that they're. She's screwing with her heritage. And. Destroying family relationships. And she shouldn't have done it. Uh, to me, I, I can't see the other side. Can you? I mean, I can see them being upset that, like, they want to just live this life that they knew that there was life, and now it's changed, but and it's now it's harder. True. But, but like, it's not true. Yeah, and then to not have sympathy for the other family. They lived their whole life not knowing what happened right. to their brother, their son, their uncle, whatever. Right. And not only that, Bobby Dunbar went to visit who he found Julia and her kids. So he went and found his siblings. So he questioned whether he was a Dunbar. Yeah. Why are you taking that away from him too? Yeah. He wanted to know. Why don't you want to know? And also, this isn't anybody's fault except for Percy and... And Leslie. Yeah. Right. And there's this one t- point where one of the Anderson children, grandchildren, and Margaret were doing a speech at a, uh, like a historical society or genealogical society and she was speaking of Bobby Dunbar as being a Dunbar. And she was saying stuff about Julia being a coarse country woman and illiterate and all this other stuff and not really being very nice. And the other, the Anderson family member was there too. And she got angry. And it was really hard for the two women to work together because one's working on behalf of Julia Anderson. One's working on behalf of the Dunbars, right? Yeah. And they both want to believe that their family stories are true. Yeah. So they're trying to be polite to each other. But, you you know, your dander starts to stand up a little bit Mm -hmm. because you're talking crap on Julia Anderson, who's my grandmother. So they kind of almost came to blows a little bit where Julia Anderson's granddaughter said, hey, look, Margaret, this woman that you're talking so shitty about could turn out to be your grandmother. Right. 
And that's when Margaret like had this revelation, like I'm searching for the truth, but in my head, I believe I know the truth and I'm talking crap on this woman and I could be completely wrong. And guess what? She was and totally related to her. And she was, Yeah, she was talking crap on her own grandmother by blood, not by family relationships. She grew up thinking she was a Dunbar. So no one still knows what happened to the real Bobby Dunbar then. Yeah. It's sort of the saddest part of the story. The boy that grew up as Bobby Dunbar was really Bruce Anderson. And Bobby Dunbar is just somewhere else. Gone. Yeah. None of the three families, the Dunbars, the Andersons, or the Walters, can say what happened to the real Bobby Dunbar. Did he fall into a swamp and was eaten by an alligator? Did he drown? Or was he truly kidnapped? Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to follow and comment on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Good evening, everybody, or morning or afternoon or whatever. It doesn't matter. We are Graveyard Tales. Now, if you like ghost stories, hauntings, cryptid encounters, and the weird history behind them, then you should join us in the graveyard. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast providers. Check out our website at graveyardpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at GRV. I just go search Graveyard Tales. That would be easier. Now we hope to see you in the graveyard. History is a lot dirtier than you think. Salacious History is a new podcast that explores moments in history that were shaped by sex, romance, and people who were generally down to clown. Using sex and related topics as a jumping off point, Sarah Duncan presents a cheeky yet factual glimpse into historical moments that may have been a little too racy for your high school history class. Season 1 explores topics such as why JFK couldn't keep it in his pants, America's first power couple, the history of mail-order brides, and the love story that built the Taj Mahal. So if you like your history with a little side of sleaze, check out Salacious History. You can listen and subscribe to Salacious History on Apple Podcasts or stream episodes directly at salacioushistory.com.